prize. I've already got the prize. The prize is the pleasure of finding a thing out. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You realize when you know how to think, it empowers you far beyond those who know only what to think. And we're going. There we go. And we're live. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, coming back to another episode of Griffins and Gluons. My name is Elliot. I'm your host today, and I'm joined again by our club president, Josh Cadogan. Josh, glad to do another one of these with you. How are you? I'm good. Midterms are over. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. And uh, I'm actually really excited today. Uh, one could even say that I'm so excited I've jumped an energy level because uh, today we are joined by Dr. Liliana Caballero of the Astrophysics and Gravitation Group and Nuclear Physics Group. And she's also a professor here at the University of Guelph. Dr. Caballero graduated with her bachelor's in physics from the National University of Columbia and went on to complete her PhD in physics from the Indiana University, Bloomington, where she developed simulations of multi-component plasmas, liquids, and gases using Monte Carlo and molecular dynamic methods. She has gone on to do a postdoctoral, to be a postdoctoral researcher at North Carolina State University, the Institute for Nuclear Theory in Seattle, Washington, Technical University Darmstadt in Germany, Michigan State University, and of course, here at the University of Guelph. Dr. Caballero has published numerous papers on nuclear astrophysics and has been an active member of the Latin American STEM community, as well as appearing as a guest speaker at the Women in Physics Conference in 2019, solidifying herself as a role model for women in STEM. Dr. Caballero, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, guys, for the introduction and for having me here. A pleasure to be here. It was pretty crazy, actually, looking through through all the institutions that you've worked for, that, that you represented. And uh, I, I just wanted to know, can you take us sort of the progression from how you went from, you know, from Colombia and researching in Colombia to the United States and then, you know, coming to Canada and then here at Guelph? For sure. Yeah, uh, definitely has been a long way um, with the stops at many different places. So uh, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, so that's where I did my undergrad, so um, that didn't represent a big move. Uh, so I did my undergrad over there, and I knew I wanted to be a researcher. So uh, it was very clear to me that I needed to do a PhD somewhere, and I decided to go to the States, the United States, to do my um, PhD at Indiana. In Bloomington, I finished, uh, after I finished over there, then uh, the path that uh, most students follow is to do one or two postdocs, or sometimes three, depending on how the job market is. Uh, so I moved uh, to North Carolina State University, and I joined there the theoretical nuclear physics group, uh, stayed there for my postdoc, and then uh, moved to Seattle for, uh, to have a family, and then I restarted my career with a short uh, fellowship over there in Seattle at the Institute of Nuclear Theory. And uh, when I was ready to reactivate my career full time, then I moved to Germany for a year uh, to the Extreme Matter Institute at the University 
Technical University in Darmstadt. And then from there, uh, well, I moved to Guelph, but in between, I had a stop for some time also before and settling down here in Guelph at, the, at Michigan State. And uh, that was fairly close. Uh, and I was doing some work over there at EFRIC, uh, the, the National um, uh, Solid Semiconductor uh, Cyclotron Facility. Well, I don't have the whole thing complete. Uh, and then I just moved to work and I've been since they're here and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And uh, I, I just have to ask, you know, that, how is that change from, you know, doing lots of lots of research and, and doing a lot of work in these very, you know, complex fields to, you know, starting a family and, and how, how did you manage to, to, to balance those two aspects? Well, hmm, I think that's a good question. Uh, for many people that are aiming to have a family and trying to balance family and um, work. And it's not only for women that are, or for couples that are in uh, doing physics, but I think for any couple that have one of the other significant others or both of them trying to pursue so careers, I think that is, uh, it is a challenge, definitely. Uh, I personally decided to take a break. So I spent a couple of years with my son, raising him. And it was really difficult to come back, I have to admit. It was very, very challenging. Um, uh, the research field is very, very, I would say, unforgiven in terms of uh, once you stop doing physics, for example, then taking it back requires a lot of energy and catch up and in a way proven that you want to really be there, right? So it took some effort, but I think happily I managed, but it is a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. So I guess, like you said, you needed to be fairly motivated to, to start to begin with, let alone continue to the depth that you've gone um, to present. So I guess uh, I'm wondering more so what got you into physics in the first place? Oh, um, when I was a kid, I was already very curious about science, uh, but there was no one in my family of origin uh, related to physics, right? So my parents had no idea about science. Nobody is an engineer. Nobody does anything related to mathematics. So I was kind of the black sheep uh, because um, in my family, there are uh, people that are interested in arts or uh, accountants or even health, but really was no one that can give me a hand with trying to understand something about science. So it was uh, a path on my own. And so, uh, but I was very much into it. I really liked everything that had to do with uh, how to explain the world, how the world works. Uh, and so I was very much into cosmos, like Carl Sagan very much so i do really appreciate um outreach program right i do really appreciate science communication because it was really what it got me into physics um yes i did have a good okay physics teachers back uh, when i was in high school but it was only up to that i wouldn't have become a physicist probably wouldn't 
would have ended up being in mathematics or something like that, but about science, definitely cosmos was one of the things, and I, I just dreamt to be a scientist. Yeah, I think that's kind of a, a common trend, at least, um, from what we've been hearing from a lot of our professors. Is it all, always tends to start from a, a deep-seated root of wanting to understand things um, and, you know, just meeting the right people, getting inspired by the right things along the way. Yeah, um, I think um, I was also very lucky when I got my uh, first uh, year as an undergrad. I took uh, a course, I something that I actually would like to do here in Guelph at some point in my life, I hope. I was uh, taking this uh, model physics uh, course that was uh, for first year, so nobody knew, or we, it was assumed that we didn't know calculus or complicated math. So what we had was algebra. So we, I took a first year course in physics of um, just dealing with relativity and quantum mechanics and radiation theory, if you want, based only on algebra. Okay, but it was the one of I I was very lucky to be able to see what was what physics was about from the beginning, right? Uh, we spent uh, most of the curriculum in physics uh, program spent quite a lot of time building the foundations of what is modern physics, right? So we spent some time learning about uh, mechanics and Newton's laws and so on, which is nice, but that is kind of familiar when you are coming from your, you know, if you have taken those courses in your high school. Uh, but it's, it's not only what physics is about. So uh, having a course like that and with all the motivation that I have from, from you know, Cosmos, then knowing that I, at the end of the four-year period, five-year period, is the program in Columbia is five years. And knowing that I will get to understand this much better and in a deeper way, oh, wow, yeah, it really motivated me to keep going. So uh, just wanted to know, as, as mentioned before, you've been a lecturer at some of the previous institutions that you've worked with, and you're a lecturer now uh, teaching you know, multiple courses and even teaching us uh, you know, quantum mechanics. Um, I just wanted to know, where did you get your approach to teaching and uh, how has it sort of changed uh, during this pandemic? Well, so uh, I think I may have mentioned this uh, to you two guys, but I probably know in general terms. But um, I think you cannot make other person know. Other people can know. You cannot transmit knowledge from one brain to another, right? Uh, there are some things that only you can experience and have enough motivation to go and look into the uh, in a, at a deeper level, right? So um, I try to really motivate my students by asking them questions, but make them feel uncomfortable by not knowing what is the answer, right? And I'm hoping with that, normalizing not to know, right? Because my feeling is at least I experience that and when I talk to some students I cannot have a sense of this. It's not being talked clearly and never put on the table. Maybe I'm gonna take advantage of your program right now to put it on the table. We have this perception that we have to know. And we cannot ask a question because oh I don't know I should be knowing the answer. So there is always this kind of self-judgment about how much we should know. And one of the beauties of doing uh Science is that we don't know. Science is about asking questions, right? So 
um actually i think that i base a lot my teaching uh in asking how could we do it how, how can we be different and i i know there are some really established rules in, in physics right and i cannot get out of that and say oh whatever silly question you have is okay no we still have some scientific method and so on but what i would like my students to take is that it's not silly to have this question it's a noise at all wrong to not knowing the answer right? yeah and, and i can definitely attest to the fact even in our class that sometimes it, there is a bit of a dead silence after you ask a question or even in other classes where the teacher will ask something and there's you know it's hard to engage because we really don't want to say the wrong thing or, or come across as, yeah, as doing the stupid answer. For sure. That's the thing, that we all think that it's a stupid answer, right? But the thing is that we don't dare to give a stupid answers when we don't have answers at all. And so I think I, I hope with uh, my students realize at some point that, okay, these awkward silences are needed for our brain to process information. Right, and I know I was there, and I was hoping, oh my God, I hope someone else answered before me. I don't want to be asked. I don't want to be asked. And there was some, some probably some milliseconds in the brain where you wish somebody answered the question, right? And if somebody else answers, then you cross your thought process stops there, and then you don't go further. But if nobody else answers, then you still, after the initial panic, then you really consider the question, and you will surprise yourself about how much creativity you can get out of it. I've got to say as well that that um, that kind of approach, um, I, I've, I find with with your class specifically right now, I've, I, I kind of get the same feeling as I did in earlier physics courses, like at the very beginning, um, where it was a mix of like, oh, this is like a really cool way of doing things, but I am like out of a little, like a little bit out of my, my element here. Um, you know, a bit of that just, from being in university in first year versus, you know, being comfortable now in a different kind of a expansion of the degree. Um, so on that topic, I was curious then if you could try to explain your research to like a first or third year level. Oh, I, tr I, I tried reading it last night and it was a bit, <laughs> it was a bit heavy. So I was curious if you could okay. try to take that. Good, good, good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, answer that question the same way I would be teaching the question. So, what if I tell you that the iron that is in your blood right now could be affected by a black hole? I mean, my question is, how much oxygen do you breathe compared to iron? And you say, okay, yeah, I can see, and I can have a, a lot of iron here in Earth, right? And I know I have a, some amount of iron in my blood, but sometimes what you wouldn't expect is that the, those amounts are affected by uh, the presence of a black hole. Or not by the presence, but certainly a black hole could have changed the amount of oxygen that we have in the atmosphere or the amount of blood that runs in the Right. So I think that we don't connect sometimes these kind of strange objects with the fact that we have daily lives that 
at some point develop the way they know it. We know it because they exist. So that's what I do for my research. So I try to connect and put it in more formal terms. I try to connect how a the amount of elements that we see here on Earth and in the universe have been affected, for example, by the presence of a strong gravitational field. Okay. Yeah? Okay. So and I you... did, 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 was it catchy, my question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely, it definitely peaked, peaked my ear, the, uh, the initial prompt there. Okay. Um, that's definitely you're definitely echoing Carl Sagan in that sense, but his famous line: "We are all made of star stuff. We yeah. are all yeah, star yeah. stuff, or whatever yeah. it is." Uh, so that's that's pretty crazy. Uh, it's cool to see that that uh, that line sort of being you know applied to to, to actual research. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 elaborating on that, I just want to know: Are you still using any of the uh, so some of the models that we had talked about before when you're at uh, Indiana University of Bloomington, are you still using any of that, that research or any models or, or aspects from that to your present research at all? Well, yes, actually, every single step that I have taken in the way to be here, and if you want to think it again, geographically speaking, um, in different institutions, I have been very lucky to, to have exchanges with research that are that are excellent in their field. And, and in each of these changes, I've been able to develop some sort of tool that I currently apply in my research. Yeah, so uh, it has been uh, built up on many different topics that all come together uh, by a common thread that is this about the influence of nuclear physics in astrophysical processes. And, um, and yeah, definitely there are some tools that I'm still using, some tools that I'm planning to build more on, and some tools that are new. Yeah, absolutely. So when when I was coming through um, your research last night, um, I saw a, a heavy emphasis on um, neutrinos, and that's kind of one of those, those buzzwords that, especially when you're kind of looking at pop science, you see a neutrino, you kind of get excited. Um, and I guess at, at our point, uh, in our degree so far, um, we haven't really seen much of, you know, what a neutrino actually is, why are they so important, um, and whatnot. So I was curious if you could give us kind of a, you know, a reasoning for that, you know, why, why are we so interested in these? Why do we have huge detectors uh, all over the, you know, the earth right now trying to find them? So, um, so yeah, neutrinos are elementary particles. Uh, neutrinos, uh, there are four major, uh, two, uh, I'm sorry, there are four forces in nature. And one of them are weak forces. And neutrinos only interact with matter through weak processes. Okay. So there is no other way to detect neutrinos than, than that. So that, they are so difficult to, to detect. Okay. Um, what is interesting is that neutrinos are abundantly emitted in astrophysical scenarios like supernova or neutron star mergers or black hole neutron star mergers. And when I say abundantly, I'm saying very, very abundantly. Uh, so, for example, a supernova uh, 
uh, emits energy, and you know that you can detect all supernovas just in the optical. Right? At the telescope, we see electromagnetic radiation, and it will be kind of you can point out in that direction, right? So direct your telescope, and then you see something in the sky. Now, um, the amount of uh, energy that a supernova is releasing is uh, 99% neutrinos. So what you observe and you think, oh my God, a supernova happened because you saw it in the optical. Well, it's 99% actually the most of, uh, amount of energy is emitted in the form of neutrinos. So uh, the neutrinos carry a lot of information about astrophysical objects and mostly because they are only interacting via weak forces. Um, about the interior of the star, the nuclear physics of the star. Okay, um, they're also important because in the way out of a star or a neutron star merger, they can change via uh, weak forces again, weak interaction, the amount of neutrons to protons in the in the stellar medium, and that determines if the side, the astrophysical side, is going to undergo different kind of reactions that will end up telling me, for example, if gold was processed in this kind of um, explosions or not. Okay, so neutrinos are important from, from the uh, astrophysical point of view because can tell us if they, um, the stellar medium released a lot of energy, how much energy was released, uh, if there was a connection between the amount of elements that were uh, processed in, in one place or another. Another interesting uh, view that I can give you of this is that uh, when you look at the sun, you look at the sun and you see it with your eyes, okay? Uh, and what you see is that the place, the sphere, the surface where the photons decouple from matter from the sun and travel to us. Right. Um, so similarly, when you're talking about neutrinos, you're looking at the surface where the neutrinos decouple. Now, neutrinos, because they only interact weakly with matter, decouple much, much closer to the interior of the of the side that we're talking about, a supernova or a neutral star merger, say. So um, essentially, there we are probing matter at the extreme conditions of temperature and density much more than the photons could tell us, much deeper inside the stellar interior. Um, and that is that is because neutrinos, uh, yeah, they don't get trapped. They can easily travel away, they interact weakly. But even the conditions of this stellar environment can be so high that at some point, even neutrinos will get trapped, right? So I study, for example, where that place uh, geometrically speaking is and what can tell us in terms of the nuclear physics that we can learn from them. So um, there are all questions at the fundamental level in terms of the neutrino matrix, okay? Uh, a lot of neutrino physics that can be also extracted from this kind of observations and a lot of, uh, that motivates a lot of efforts in terms of observatories around the world uh, for example, we have uh, the Sudbury, right? There's no lab uh, in Ontario. We have uh, Super Kamikandi in Japan. We will soon have Dune, it's an international effort in the States, and so on. There are 
more and more neutrino observatories, and there are many other ones that I'm not mentioning here that are on the on the search of neutrino, astrophysical neutrinos, because we can learn so much from this stellar interiors, um, ultimately about nuclear physics and weak interactions as well. And I was just actually, I was just about to ask you about Snow Lab, um, and and I wanted to know: Have you been able to either collaborate or work with any of these uh, these neutrino labs as well directly, uh, or or is it just maybe a, you know third party data that you that you would have that you would gather? No, not directly. I don't have a, a published work about it, but there have been a communications to start collaborations and so on uh, with the Snow Lab people for sure. And with the super kind of candy and so on, yes, I do have some papers that talk about the detection of neutrinos from um, accretion disks or neutron star mergers uh, directly in proper case. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I hope I haven't gone to Snow Lab. I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the right time to go, but I'll definitely go underground, see what is the deal about. For sure. So if uh, at some point, uh, in my life, one of the Snow Lab people are hearing me right now. Hey guys, I want to go. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to DM them the the link, and uh, <laughs> they'll 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 find it in the interview for sure. So yeah. Okay, so so is then I, I guess to kind of wrap up that um, idea, are the are these neutrino detections? So it's, it's more so to measure like abundances or like a flux of neutrinos. Um, than it is to just measure and prove the existence of a neutrino? That's a very good question. So <clears throat> I talk so much that I mix stuff, right? Okay. So I'm going to try to clarify that, that uh, part. So I'm just going to give you a model of what we think happens, and we kind of have seen has happened. In the case, for example, of a neutron star merger, right? This also applies for supernova. So as uh, the start of the of the merger happens, a lot of the matter is really heat up and it's gonna be composed mainly of neutrons and some parts from protons. Okay. It's very much packed, it's highly dense. So it stays together via nuclear forces. That's what remains in the system, stays in the system the way it is. But because there is some collision or increase in temperature and so on the matter is dissociated in, from that form. So neutrons and protons start being separated and it's so hot that the neutrinos uh, start playing an important role. Neutrons will become protons and the other way around, these reactions are gonna occur and neutrinos are gonna be emitted. So in the process, then they're gonna be kind of matter that is ejected like outbound because it's a collision, it's a mess, okay? So part of it is going to go and outflow, so decompress initially. There is matter all around. And neutrinos are going to go and interact with that matter. And obviously, the gravitational field of all this is extremely large. So you know that light can even be bended by black holes. So similarly, neutrinos are going to have some changes due to the gravitational field that is around this matter, right? So the matter that has been out as an kind of outflow ejected is going to interact with these neutrinos and it's going to become new matter that as the cool down we're going to understand as heavy elements right like uranium gold silver okay 
But that, how far and how heavy goes, depends on the initial amount of neutrons and protons. And neutrinos are key because it can they can change that. So what I would answer to your question is, as a byproduct, the new matter that is being emitted and is going to be in that, like, uh, observed as a kilonova, ultimately, is um, affected by the neutrino interaction. So that's one part of the neutrino theory, like a byproduct. The other part is not all the neutrinos are going to interact with matter, but it's go they're going to fly away infinitely, very far, and reach us. Okay? And when it reaches, then we're going to be ready to detect them. And I want to know, I got a detection. You're not know, if as an experimentalist here, you just saw a neutrino being detected. Very difficult, but you have your setup and you manage to detect that neutrino, and it consumes some energy. And it came, I don't know, three, ten, I don't know, in a matter of milliseconds or in a matter of seconds. So you would like to know, did it come from a supernova, from the sun, from an interstellar merger, from what is this neutrino coming from? So I, my job is to make models so we can understand better what is what we're going to get as an observation. Um, so now that is a very interesting field is the, the birth of nucleus in the physics where we can get very different signals from different observatories and get to know, oh, okay, this came from, the, we've got neutrinos, we've got gamma ray bursts, we've got kilonovia, so all of these are matching together, gravitational waves, and the best answer we have for this problem is best. This was the science, right? And we learn a lot about it. Now, if I, if I, you know, to complete the whole picture, all of this is also based very much in nuclear physics, uh, so, our understanding of all these emissions it gets better as we understand more of the pieces of the nucleus and for that we use a lot of theoretical models of the nucleus itself but also there are um, facilities around the world that try to study these kind of reactions or what we think these reactions are in, in the stars here on earth so it's, it's quite fascinating how to make sense of this astrophysical event, how much physics you need, right? Like you need uh, a lot of different collaborations and pieces of the puzzle. For sure. Mm -hmm. And that definitely uh, attests to sort of how, you know, you're both part of the astrophysics and gravitation group and nuclear physics group. You're kind of bringing these two disciplines to be able to understand uh, this phenomena better. Um, do, do you find like, like in, in order to fully sort of comprehend this picture, how are you like, how are you splitting up the, um, I don't want to say the workload, but, but let's say how, how much time are you focusing on the astrophysical side? How much time are you focusing on the nuclear model side in trying to bring the two together? Good question. So, um, what I do is I, I, hmm, I'm mostly a nuclear physicist. Okay, so I do a lot of work on 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 neutrino physics that is related to nuclear physics and some reactions as well. Hmm. Wow, this is a very interesting question because I'm so interested in many sub fields of nuclear astrophysics uh, that uh, I cannot say that I just do one single thing. But I study different models where nuclear physics is uh, really making a difference. And my idea, my research program is to see how changes in nuclear physics can tell us 
something about the observations we see. So yeah, I have different projects and um, my students, I guess, enjoy very much working in each of these projects. I hope when they talk, they realize, oh, wow, I didn't know you were doing this sort of thing. But yeah, I guess when they communicate, they realize that sometimes the projects are probably they see very different, but overall it has a common theme. So yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, but I like that very much. Yeah, and like, so it, it's very it's very abundant by the 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 overlap there that um, you definitely work heavily in the kind of more globally talked about um, connection between you know relativity and quantum mechanics. This seems like a direct kind of you know cause of those two trying to mix, um, and it's it's no surprise to people who are in physics that people are you know trying to mix these two fields. Uh, but I was curious if you could try to, again, to, to like a first year or like a high school level, try to explain why it is that we're interested in trying to mix uh, quantum mechanics and uh, gravity. Oh, okay. So that is um, a dangerous question. <laughs> the way I'm going to answer. Oh, no. Because um, you certainly as an undergrad may have already heard about quantum gravity. Right? So I do know work in the trying to quantize the gravitational field, which is another totally field of physics. And so I rather look at the behavior of neutrinos, which ultimately will, oh, I'm all in neutrinos, but this quantum system that are the nucleus and the, the interaction of neutrinos with nucleons or neutrons and protons and so on. So that in terms of a quantum level, yes. But I don't do exactly quantum gravity, right? I do use the fact that there are strong gravitational fields and how matter is affected by them, right? Even at the microscopic level. So, yes, in a sense, I'm studying the mixture of microscopic and quantum mechanical systems under the influence of gravitational fields, right? But yeah, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I don't want to be pretentious that I'm quantizing gravity. I okay. wish, but I don't know, I don't do that part. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And uh, I, I guess on that note, we'll move away from the dangerous questions and uh, and move more towards um, sort of your involvement about uh, about outreach. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, like mentioned before, you were a speaker at the uh, Women in Physics Conference in 2019. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of know, sort of more importantly, as, as a Latina growing up in Colombia and going to school in Colombia uh, and pursuing a very male-dominated field, did you encounter a lot of resistance from sort of the environment of machismo and, and tradition at the beginning? Or, um, or uh, was it sort of smoothened out? Or can, can you tell us about your experience? I did, and I did at different levels, right? Um, the first layer, I would say, is the tradition. The tradition, uh, and I think, yeah, probably not as much in my home country, but it's a global thing, and I hope that it has changed by now. But yes, Colombia has some traditional principles, and it was not, at the time, was not very common to, to for women to be involved in in physics, 
now the, the, for some reason women are seem to be more attracted to biology or chemistry in the sciences right uh, so that probably was one thing but uh, particularly for for my social environment when i was growing up yeah no there, i didn't know any woman that was an engineering or an engineer or a physicist right so yeah there was a lot of resistance from saying oh what are you gonna do with that i mean you're gonna start like a physicist they cannot find jobs right that, that was the, the the belief at the time when i was growing up so there was a um, that resistance in the path of becoming a physicist. Okay, so doing my undergrad uh, in physics, and I think um, that is a mixture between thinking of what are the roles of women and men, and also in terms of what is what is gonna give you a way of living, right? So which is regardless of, of what uh, your gender is or not, right? So it's more about uh, um, tradition in terms of what is what gonna make you some money to survive in a third world country at the time, right? Or at least if I don't say third world country because I don't want to be judged by this, but I think at, at the very least, a country that at the time the resources were not focused on science because we had so many political problems, right? So, um, yeah, there was that, there was that part now, um. Overcoming that part, as I can imagine, many many girls that are, of, I don't know, undergrads that are already decided going for some scientific field. Uh, after that, it becomes the the hardship of peer pressure, which that is a little bit more shocking because what you will expect is that your peers are there working uh, with you together. You are at the same level, but um, it was not my case. Okay, now I think here is it could be different. I can see that things are more uh, equal in that regard. But uh, at the time, it was not. I felt judged by my classmates, and I felt judged for some of my professors. Um, thankfully, I navigated in a way that I how uh, that I was able to build connections with people that were open-minded. Which is great, okay. And that was uh, I had a um, male supervisor, undergrad supervisor. He he was awesome. That simple. He was very supportive. And uh, I just stay a little bit away from the, the people that I felt would judge me. So that's how I navigated. Now, to be honest, that that pressure should never exist, okay. But I did felt it back then. I have to admit, right. Then um, the other difficulty that I found is to be you know to learn a language that was no mine when i was almost uh, beyond my 20s okay uh because the resources that we had back home to for me to learn english as a single language was uh, were uh, scare right it was very 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 difficult for me to get adapted but i managed i managed so that was another um uh challenge when i moved up uh, out of colombia to come to this new place where everything is new families left behind and all the information is coming in a language that you manage hardly speak and ah, so it was kind of panic at the time but what i realized there and for you not to, to consider is <laughs> that it's, this is funny but sometimes 
people think that you don't understand well is because of your your lack of uh, intellectual abilities rather than oh this person is not understanding well because they cannot comprehend english properly right so that was also a little bit of shocking but okay you know you get used to it i i have had other obstacles in my life so that was not the major one but it just has been funny <laughs> at times has been funny yeah no, it's fair. I, I can definitely relate to that when my dad, my dad was born in Uruguay and he, mm-hmm. uh, when he first moved to Canada, he didn't really know the, the word for, for, um, for dissolve. I think it was in a, in, in a chemistry class oh. and he said, and he said melt instead of dissolve oh. and, his, and his teacher went off. It's like, it doesn't melt, it dissolves. That's ridiculous. You haven't been paying attention. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, the, the, the barrier doesn't, doesn't always help. So. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of a real at some point, but you know, yeah, yeah. then you have stories to tell. Okay? Oh, exactly. Well, he he has an engineering degree, so I mean, he obviously knows what melting and dissolving is. Now, exactly. I'm sure. exactly. <laughs> there you go. You got it. Um, so I, I on a little bit of a different note, um, you know, in the global scientific community, in terms of um, kind of astronomy and uh, you know the move towards space. We have companies like SpaceX who are making these like awesome new rockets. Um, we had the first female-only spacewalk, uh, and now we have all of these eyes towards uh, commercial flights. So I was wondering, if given the chance, would you go to space? Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will go to space. I have the very bad luck that I get dizzy with anything, right? So I was like, uh, if I go to a merry-go-round, I just, you know, I'm off for the day. If I go... Uh, <laughs> to um roller coaster i get sick for the rest of the afternoon that's very unfortunate very unfortunately because if it was up to me i would be in space for sure absolutely i cannot imagine the feel and yeah i mean for sure unfortunately i don't think my body can put up with it but if if they come with some sort of situation when i'm so fortunate to be offered a seat because i cannot pay that either and they offer me that whatever pill is so i don't feel like nauseous all the time in a heartbeat yeah absolutely that would be something <laughs> so partially because you're uh, our most recent quantum mechanics prof and partially because it's kind of an inside joke across the physics community um i was I was kind of curious if you could, you know, as my last kind of explain at a high school level type question, uh, if you could try to tackle the topic of spin briefly. Oh, okay. Oh, putting me on the spot with the whole whole world. For sure. So spin. Hmm. So how would you explain math? (laughs) See that over here again. I'm going back to be a, a teacher right now. I, I answer with that with that question. So, um, well, some there's a few things in life that you just accept and never question, right? Now we can question spin, of course. But what I'm trying to say to you is that when I ask you, okay, what is charge? You say you just you know I you just accept that, and I say, okay, charge is this because you have experienced charge, you have experienced mass, so and you have experienced rem through some sort of interaction. Meaning, like you know, you are attached to attached to the ground because you have a mass, and you have play for sure with electricity and get you know get the the burn in your hands because some current passed through your 
fingers or whatever, right? So, um, but these kind of things, you don't question that. But I can tell you that spin exactly like that is something that it matters experience, right? And it happens that you experience because when you realize that they are, um, when a piece of substance is, uh, has a spin and you place it in a magnetic field, then something happens to it. And the only way to explain it is through spin. It doesn't even have to be charged. So it's not related to electric charge, it's not related to mass, it's related to something else. And for that something else to be explained, we use the word spin. Now it happens that very fortunately we can try to make a analogy to mechanics as we know it in like the macroscopic world, and then we think about it as angular momentum. Okay, so speak we can think of it as the intrinsic angular momentum that particles have, right? And angular momentum is, uh, well, tell us how rotation is happening around an axis, okay? So um, these uh, particles don't have any volume in the microscopic world, so it's much more difficult for me to try to make you that analogy of angular momentum around and exits because then if they are just a single point, how is that single point rotating about that something, right? But but I think if you can think about a big, big ball, you know, the soccer ball, and then put it to spin around one of its exits around itself and trying to make it smaller, 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 infinitely small. And then think about that angular momentum that there is no volume anymore. Then maybe that could bring you the concept of the spin. But as, as I mentioned to you, this is kind of an artifact because it's more about what the interaction of that um, spin is with the world that makes more sense of it. Does it satisfy you for quantum mechanics? Oh, I, th I think that clears it up, yeah. <laughs> okay, because I'm gonna then, that, now you gave me the, an idea for some of the questions, so then fine. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, no. Technology, guys, no. Okay, no, just kidding, I'm not gonna ask that. <clears throat> Don't give away that. I hate if if you asked us to do an to do an essay on describing what spin is, then I'm then I'm okay with that rather than okay, rather than solving good, it. Good, but, good. Uh, <laughs> then you can publish in your um, uh, website. <laughs> exactly. There you go. That'll be what I'm, my my most prominent work is just explaining what exactly what you said. Okay, so, cool. Um, awesome. So uh, I, I guess with that uh, we're approaching time here. Um, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, so can you just let us know and let the listeners know what's uh, what's next in store for you and uh, where can people read more about you and your research? Oh, what is next? Um, well, I want to keep committing to my research and my teaching, of course, and behind doors to my son, <laughs> to have a family life. And I think that's important for everybody. Um, so yeah, I'll try to keep balance in, in terms of research. So uh, I'm gonna keep studying everything that is related to multi-messenger signals, that's very much cool. And if you have questions about the relationship between nuclear physics and multi-messengers, I'm very happy for you to drop a line and email or something like that. 
And uh, well, you can know about me by typing Liliana Caballero Wolf, and you see that there are some links over there. And it, I've been in the process of uh, developing my website like for five years already. And uh, you know, it's been a very slow process, but the university has some some information here and there about um, uh, its faculty. So yeah, I think you can find me in the in the thesis Wolf website in. And yeah, if you have questions, I'd be happy to respond by email. Awesome. Okay, guys, what's up, Jason? Great. Well, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you so much for co-hosting with me. It's yeah, no pleasure. worries. Thanks for having me back. Um, and uh, Dr. Gavajero, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate no it. No problem. Thank you, guys. Take right. care. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye.